and we're live. Welcome to this week's episode of MicroConf On Air. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every Wednesday, we live stream for about 30 minutes and cover topics related to building and growing ambitious SaaS startups that don't require us to go, require us to go crazy, work 80 hour weeks, raise buckets of money, or um, sacrifice our freedom, purpose, or relationships. And that's what uh, MicroConf, that's what MicroConf on air, that's what startups for the rest of us, that's what Tiny Seed, that's what we're all about, is being ambitious, building interesting things that maybe not change, the, they don't change the whole world, but they might change our little corner of it, and uh, doing it while maintaining healthy relationships and, and trying to stay sane. So thanks so much for joining me again this week. This week I have a interesting guest with an interesting topic talking about making your first hire, building and growing remote SaaS teams. And uh, I'm gonna start introing my guest here. She is, uh, her name is Natalie Luniva. Um, you may have run across her on the interwebs, but she runs the SaaS Boss Podcast. And she is married to the founder of Deposit Fix. And she actually works, uh, said she you know, contributes um, quite a bit helping her husband um, scale and market and manage the team of Deposit Fix. Depositfix.com is accept Stripe and PayPal using HubSpot forms. Um, oh yeah, producer Xander just said my camera's a little jacked. Sorry about that. I need to zoom in. Oh yeah, that's just what you wanna see. Get up close and personal. Thanks, Xander, for, for that. So uh, Natalie Luniva is going to be joining me here in just a moment. Um, she's a growth and team performance coach for SaaS founders. She draws on more than 10 years of marketing and management experience. And she's married, you know, as I said, she's married to a bootstrap SaaS founder. Natalie helps SaaS companies identify and implement high ROI opportunities and uh, figure out how to scale. So natalieluniva.com if you want to check out all about her or the SaaS Boss podcast. And I'd like to welcome her to the show. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Natalie is in MicroConf Connect if you ever wanted to you know, DM or, or connect with her. Obviously, if you have questions for either of us, um, we are in uh, MicroConf on air, the MicroConf on air channel of MicroConf Connect. And uh, oh, there's a question that has already come through. Uh, love it. But let me start, Natalie, by asking you, um, setting it up. You know, you, you obviously have a lot of experience uh, managing and marketing and hiring for SaaS companies, a lot of bootstrapped experience, it seems. Um, I get this question a lot, and I'm curious to hear your take on it. When do you feel is the right time to make your first hire as a, let's say, a mostly bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped SaaS founder? Um, I think when you start feeling like you're doing too much and you're switching too much, uh, and all of this switching back and forth is actually draining your energy, or when you're doing a lot of five to ten dollar. Um, our job that someone else can do this for you. You were trying to be the jack of all trades, which is actually hindering your growth. So this is probably the best uh, time for you to think about hiring someone. Got it. And the the follow up question to that, which I have some thoughts on, uh, is what position should you hire first? I think. Absolutely. I think different stages uh, require a different uh, thinking about this. But if it's your brand new first hire, then I would recommend think about more like a generalist, someone who fills your as a founder gaps, kind of jack of all trades, 
uh, we don't want at this point high level executives who used to a structure uh, because your environment is very unstructured, very hectic, right? You don't probably have any uh, processing in place just yet. So bringing specialists for uh, specific work is a little bit down the road, but the first hire is probably generalist. And then think about this also, um, they talk a lot about T-shaped. So uh, people who have uh, a very narrow uh, experience in a specific subject, but then they have broad uh, range or understanding in various areas. Um, so this would be something to consider. Uh, but then think about these questions. Where do you need help? now like as soon as possible obviously if you're drowning in support then this is not the right time to hire a marketing person um what are my own skills and abilities like if you are really good with sales and marketing then this is not the uh the job that you'd like to hire someone else to do but also what gives you energy um if you are really excited about you know a specific area then do not replace you with someone else doing this not yet anyways right that's that's yep. how i think about it too is it's like if you're the, if you're a founder and you're a developer and you're cranking on the product you probably need help with sales marketing or operations or support right but if you are a marketing expert and you know you you've hired a contract uh agency to build the product well it's maybe time to bring somebody in-house to do it for me personally the first person i always hired was support and that's because uh, you know probably because i worked on apps that needed you know had enough email support just enough that it was a pain uh, a pain for me even in the early days i would typically do support for a few months to kind of do customer development and learn what needed to be built and learn what the big problems are and then i would bring in someone i trusted early on i would hire from scratch like from odesk right that's now upwork as i got later i would just pull people off of prior projects that i had that i already trusted and could just train them up um, so email support i think is something that a lot of founders do for too long and they usually justify it with one of two explanations number one is oh it doesn't take me that long it's just you know half an hour a day or something like that and number two is well i'm still learning so much from my customers that i want to be really close to it and i don't want to hire someone who's not very good at it and both of those i think are are justifications to hang on or to the third one the third one that uh was for us at least our product is very technical. So my husband is like, Everyone says you know, that. only I yeah. am the person who can respond to <laughs> all of those me. technical questions. You can find someone who's good enough to support developers working on a technical product. You can, I've done it. It wasn't the easiest thing, but you absolutely can. And they're not super expensive. You do not need to find a developer. You need to find someone who is willing to learn enough code that they can translate a few things and figure some stuff out. And I've had multiple um, folks that I found over the years who are able to, who are able to do that. We, um, we have a, an audience question or a listener question, and uh, it's from Tremaine Tyler. And I'm going to jump him in here, even though, you know, it's a little bit of a non sequitur to what we're currently talking about, but I love the listener questions because they're, it's live, right? And that's the point of doing a live broadcast instead of just recording a, a podcast um, is that we can have these kinds of things. So he throws it out and I think you and I should both weigh in on this, Natalie. He says, uh, Tremaine Tyler, he says, my SaaS has been stuck at $180,000 a year for almost three years. We got there in one, in one year. So in 12 months, they got to 180K ARR and then it stopped. What are some common factors you find in entrepreneurs who plateau like this? And I would actually reshape that question. I don't think it's the entrepreneur. I think it's the probably the product or the market itself. So 
Um, Natalie, do you want to, you have any thoughts on, on stuff when you see it plateau and whether it's plateauing at this 15 K a month, right? So what do you see it plateauing at 15 K or whether you see it at, at 10 K or 30 K there do tend to be some commonalities I, I think we've seen. So, but there are also so many reasons that that can happen. The first step in untangling this problem would be to probably look at your metrics and see where the lowest hanging fruit is. I have a template that I use from uh, Ben Murray, the SaaS CFO, also known as a SaaS CFO. And so that template is absolutely awesome where you can see so many metrics in one dashboard, beginning from how much traffic you have all the end to the very uh, you know, revenue and then everything in between instead of looking at all of those metrics in different dashboards. Now, this is why I prefer to have this in a spreadsheet. It takes a little bit of time for you to fill it out, but I highly recommend you start doing that. Um, and so once you look at those metrics, you're probably going to find some areas of opportunity to low hanging fruit, maybe churn is something that's killing you, or um, I don't know, maybe not enough traffic or like traffic is not growing um, enough, or maybe conversion from um, free to paid is declining. Um, so what's really the reason? And then if you find that top of funnel is not growing, then this is the reason to think about, okay, what is the next step? Who, who do we need to bring? What help, what special specialist we need to bring on board to help us with this additional push? Yep. I like that. Um, there's a talk by Craig Hewitt from MicroConf Europe last year. It's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash microconf. And it's something about, I forget what the title is, of course, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's something about your metrics and your numbers and how to spot bottlenecks. And that's really what, that's where I'd start with this, just like Natalie was saying. You know, you get uh, visitor to trial, trial to paid, paid to sticking around longer than 60 days. What's your churn past that? And if all of those are within the good rules of thumb, my guess is one of them is not, but if, if so if one of them's out of whack, then you got to focus on that. If they're all within the good rules of thumb, then you need more leads. And how do you get more leads? Well, it, it, is the space even big enough? You know, if you've started, um, you know, bookkeeping software for, uh, you know, for, for timber, for timber mining companies, or that's not even a thing, but you know, if you're in a tiny, tiny little niche, then maybe that's it. Maybe you own all the leads each month and, and you need to either go to another vertical or you need to, you know, go more horizontal. Um, my guess is you're not, my guess is there are a hell of a lot more leads that you're leaving on the table, whether through SEO content, paid ads, there's something you're not doing. So, um, that would be my, my top line thinking as well. Transitioning to another another question about hiring, Natalie. Um, what should you have in place for smooth team onboard, team member onboarding? Let's say you've you're it's just you or it's you and a co-founder right now, and you're going to hire someone and bring on that first or the second hire. Is there a, a short list of things that you recommend people have so that new person is onboarded well? Absolutely. Just earlier today in my mastermind group, I spoke to a founder, early stage founder who hired an SDR person. And so he hired this person on Monday. And then on Wednesday, he expects the person to already start making the calls, which is good to have such a short onboarding process. If you have a very structured onboarding process, usually early stage founders do not. So this is the first step, have an onboarding process that is going to be at least few days preferably more like four to five days maybe. And so you have a whole structure for this day, for every day, what you expect this person to do. Instead of saying, hey, go to the website and check out what we are about, um, you know, just take a look at our tickets and see what problems we have. Like this is not enough. So the things that I suggest 
founders have in place is think about SOPs, standard operating procedures. There are two ways that you can work on them. Early stage founders, you probably don't have many things in place. So the easiest way for you to do that is while you are doing some of those things, uh, take a screen share uh, video of you doing those things, explaining why you do this, how you do this, what's the step-by-step -step, so that later you can add it to your SOP or you can just you know easier share it with the next person or if you already hired someone then ha while you already explain everything to them have this early hire put together the sop for you have them write it down and basically tell them hey share like explain line by line how do you see you need to do this and then two two benefits here you make sure that the person understood everything the way that you wanted to do to be done and then the second thing is you have a ready sop so this would be my uh number one number two is communication guidelines i think this is not brought up at all uh, but having communication guidelines for example um if you have let's say four people team if you are talking one-to-one -to, -one to someone and then you know the third person needs to know about this then you need to basically duplicate the same communication and you know say everything twice right if you would have a separate channel a dedicated channel for example you're trying to onboard like a new enterprise client so you create a separate channel where everyone who needs to be involved knows that this is the conversation that's happening you don't need to duplicate this this conversation and then for example longer messages need to be sent through email but then shorter can be sent in slack and my pet peeve is do not expect immediate response because from the founder i highly recommend to let your team know that do not expect immediate response from me you probably should be working on something else right uh diving deeper and not just responding to messages just pop up on slack and then number three is company values when we put together our values and you probably think that it's too much like we're such a small company but when we've put together our values it becomes so clear to the new person that we are hiring the things to consider adding to this list of your values is for example we have it in our values we don't want to push sell uh, to a client if deposit fix is not the right fit for them if our SaaS is not the right fit this sets the tone right and so many people that join our team say that i love it because in previous company this was not the case um like uh we have many other things but just think about all the things that you want your person to know about you so that in the future uh maybe productivity is really important for you so you put it in your values and then in the future when person is underperforming or you think something can be improved you don't say hey uh you know you're doing really poorly here but you say hey our values are this we would really want you to align to our values so you don't talk directly and you don't put down the person directly but you kind of say hey here are our values let's work together to you know stay on that level i mean that's an interesting question of values i mean i think the a question i get a lot is you know what traits what trait or traits should we be looking for when interviewing people um obviously there's technical competence but there's there's kind of the, the values align what what is what is your take on that Bef I, I say that before we even hire someone um i usually say i can't work with you before i work with you so i hire if i consider hiring someone full-time or like for long term i usually assign like a smaller project 
like a, maybe a couple of days or one week or maybe a fixed price project so that I see how they work, what's their response rate, what's their, uh, are they responsible? Do they deliver if they say that they're going to get back to you on Wednesday? Do they actually get back to you on Wednesday? So you get to work with them. And I think this is an, an important impression. Uh, next, uh, I'm looking for people that take initiative because usually I know that founders, they don't want hand-holding, right? So people need to uh, be initiative. And then I say that solution people, not problem people. And by the way, this is something that you can train your existing people as well. If people come to you with a problem and not bring solution, and they say, hey, we have this problem, how can I fix it? And they come to you with the problem. Oftentimes, I find that founder is the person who actually trained their people to behave this way. So what you'd like to do is, okay, you have this problem. Have you thought about the solution? What would be our options to fix the problem? So ideally, would like to have this person already be a solution person and not the problem person. Uh, but then last thing I would say is hire self-disciplined people who don't need to be managed, but you set up the system. And so people need, they need, people know that they need to work in the system and so you manage the system and not the people huh, very cool yeah i'm actually um helping out a couple tiny seed founders right now i've done i mean geez in the 20 years since i've been uh working professionally i probably started hiring within six to 12 months after the you know writing code they started bringing me on interviews i've literally done hundreds and hundreds of interviews including like phone screenings and in person um and you know because oftentimes you do many interviews to to get a few people through the door, um, and that that does align with my experience. I think there's there's always like technical competence in a role, and then there's often the intangibles that are pretty hard to measure. Um, there is that fit. I, I like the idea of uh, solution people rather than problem people. I think that's a good way to put it. Is like, do they? Do, can you find people that take responsibility and that um, that actually make the business better? You know, and then when things go wrong, they say, well, either I failed or we failed. Now let's make it better and make sure that doesn't happen again versus, wow, someone else failed. Who's to blame? You know, and there, there's always a big component of that, I think, with, with successful people. There's another there's a question from uh, Pablo. He says, any tips on what to do and not do during the interview process for a first employee? Um, I guess that has some overlap with the prior question. Do you have any other thoughts, though? Yes, 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 yes. As a founder, have a spreadsheet. So when you interview multiple people, just like you said, Rob, uh, you kind of either forget some responses or some people, maybe they're not as you know, memorable. Um, but have the spreadsheet with all the items, kind of the same questions. You want to ask, ask the same questions, and then you add those answers in the spreadsheet so that later, 20 interviews later, you don't forget what this first person told me about this so that you uh, try not to be subjective, but you want to be objective. Very nice. Um, I've seen companies, uh, yeah, I've, I've been in interview processes where companies um, have like numerical ratings and they average them and that always felt kind of odd i like that as an engineer but i did not like it as a true there are just certain things that were really hard to manage and put a number to um and i think yeah there's something about having the right people doing the interviews i think is a big deal like learning to interview yourself is a skill but then 
teaching someone else, right? Or bringing someone else on because we often give people too, a little too much of the benefit of the doubt, I think, in interviews. You have to be, you don't have to be mean, you don't have, and you shouldn't be, but you do have to dig in. And, and you know, some people are really good at talking about their experience, but they'll talk about it in a vague way. And you almost have to push a little bit on it, like you're a journalist, right? Push a little bit, like, tell me more about exactly what you did there, or tell me how that didn't work out. Or, you know, there, there's just certain things you can suss out where people say, I was in charge of all these projects. It turns out they weren't in charge of it. You know, they were like in charge of one section of it once you get deeper in. Most people are not, not just gonna lie straight to your face. If you actually ask the direct question, they will answer you truthfully, again, most people. But you do have to an- ask these questions pretty directly in a way that might make you uncomfortable. It might be unnatural at first if you're used to being, you know, especially nice. If you live in Minnesota and you're Minnesota nice, like a lot of people I ran into, they they don't want to get personal. You know, you don't, it feels uncomfortable. That's not a natural thing. Well, in interviews, you kind of do, you don't have to get personal per se, but you do have to ask, uh, you know, some pointed questions and then you have to dig a little deeper and try to learn to do that t- in a tactful manner that doesn't feel uncomfortable. I love it. Actually, I would go a step further, especially for salespeople, put some pressure on them. Not just salespeople, see if that's appropriate, but I would add some pressure and see how they behave. Because during the interview, they're on their best behavior, right? They're not gonna be probably better than they are on the interview. Mm-hmm. So you wanna dig deeper. Mm-hmm. You wanna see how they behave under a little bit of a pressure. Yep. I think for certain roles, I mean, especially like C-level executives, um, sales folks, I think that's, yeah, it could be appropriate. I like what you said earlier about the a mistake that I've seen companies make is, they bring in an early hire, and instead of bringing in a salesperson, they bring in a sales manager. But it's like, if you don't have the budget to also now go out and have that sales manager hire a bunch of salespeople, you've just made a mistake because you need someone boots on the ground. Now, if you're venture funded, you have buckets of money and you plan to build out a big sales team in the next three months, of course, you need that that director of sales or the VP of sales who's then gonna hire the people. But that implies you already have the budget for that and, and bootstrappers don't tend to have that. And so as a bootstrapper, you do have to build bottom up versus top down like some well-funded companies will do where they start with some C-level execs or they start with VPs and hire down. I think there's there's ton of danger um, in, in doing that. Another question, this one's an interesting curveball for us. Uh, is there a place for SaaS models in domains like weddings, publishing, or home renovation, home renovation, which are rather which are rather rare but high ticket, high value events? Are there successful examples of SaaS in any other areas where use is likely limited to a few months? You have any thoughts on that? That's from Ab- Abhaya in the chat. Um. Not really. Not something that is connected to this subject. So not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have the same. Well, yeah. My experience is no. Wedding SaaS, I would not target the end users. I would not target the consumers with it. I would target all the businesses, you know, the the vendors, the the, um, wedding consultants, the wedding coordinators, uh, again, it, with, you know, similarly with home renovation, I would be targeting the contractors. We've actually funded two um, companies through Tiny Seed that are in the construction space, but they're not targeting the end consumers because really consumers don't want to pay. You know, we've gone through B2, B2C SaaS is something that virtually doesn't exist and really doesn't work very well in general. Um, 
too much price sensitivity and uh, churns too high. So if I were to try, try to get into the home renovation, the publishing space, I'd be looking at the businesses, you know, the publisher side and the construction side. And I would stay away from the trap if you're bootstrapping and especially if it's your first one, there's always the trap of, I want to build a two-sided marketplace. And that's what everybody wants to do from the start. And it almost never works. So if, if you're early to SaaS, um, meaning it's your, your first one, I would look at stair-stepping up slowly to try to get there or um, going after something that's a little more proven, you know, probably a small niche uh, kind of B2B SaaS play. So there's another question that rounds us out. We're actually, uh, the time always goes so fast. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, but do you have tips for building a high performance team? I realize that's a pretty general question, but if someone's thinking, I'm going to hire my next three or four people over the next year, and I want us to be a cohesive group that's all headed in the same direction, and we're getting shit done. You know, what, what would you do from the start? What would you advise uh, a founder? That's a great question to add a ball uh, to the very end of this conversation. But really, uh, taking a step back, the, the third reason why software companies fail is not the right team. After no market uh, fit and ran out of cash, not the right team is top third reason why software companies fail. Can you imagine that? So it is just so important, but also not the right team uh, implies that it is that person's problem and not the founder problem. Now, I want to say that high performance team is really a result of founders knowledge uh, and expertise and experience in managing and leading teams. And that's uh, kind of a chicken on an egg. Uh, problem because good judgment is the result of experience and experience is the result of bad judgment. So unless you have this bad judgment and make all kinds of mistakes, you are not going to be able to probably build high performance team. Um, also, high performance team usually is not a newly formed team. It is a group of people who have had prior experience working together. So probably at least a few months to a couple of years. But yes, um, I think looking in the mirror and not the window is important. If you think that someone doesn't work out, I always say that if your team sucks, as a manager, it is you as a leader, as a manager who actually sucks at ma managing or leading. So it's always look, uh, look in the mirror and see how you can improve things, thinking that you hire a bunch of A players and then they're going to, you know, solve all the problems is not going to help because all of those A players, if you don't have systems in place, if you don't know how to manage those people, either going to become B or C players or they're going to leave. Yeah, one of my, the advice I give to, to folks today, if you're going to get a job as a manager and come work for whether it's a startup or a large company, um, is make sure that you have higher fire privileges going in because I made the mistake early on in my career. I was in my late twenties and it was like my second or third job and I was managing a team. But after I started, I was like, wow, there's like two or three people here that are not working out. And they're like, yeah, you don't have the authority to fire them. And I was like, what? They're my team. But we, it was a city government and there was a bunch of, you know, stuff of who had the right to do this and that very political. But, um, to your point, if you inherit a team, you need to go through and figure out how to how to make that team high performance. And oftentimes that will mean letting some folks go and replacing. Um, if you build the team from scratch, it's your responsibility from the start to, to do that. And if you've never done it, you likely will make some mistakes. And so I think be prepared for that. One actionable item I wanted to add here is 
make sure that the team knows your uh, metrics, make sure that you have those metrics and you know them because oftentimes the founder uh, themselves do not know what it is that they're trying to achieve, what it is that we're working towards this week, this month. A lot of times the founder doesn't know, so how would the team know? So the team needs to be motivated and if they don't know what's the score, how, you know, how do they achieve what they need to achieve, where they are right now, then they're not going to be motivated. And this is part of high performance team, but it's a very loaded subject. I'm actually writing a book about turning a low performance team to a high performance team for SaaS, uh, SaaS remote teams. Very nice. And if folks want to keep up with you and potentially hear about that book when it comes out, they can head to Natalie underscore Luniva on Twitter, as well as NatalieLuniva.com. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me today for 30 minutes. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. I am, uh, wait, it, he <laughs> hair model. Producer Xander uh, changed my lower third there. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us again. He's pointing out that, yes, I do have a little bit of color, a little bit of color added to the hair here. It's a post-COVID, um, not post-COVID, it's a COVID uh, fall fall splendor thing. So MicroConf Remote replay is going on. MicroConfRemote.com if you want to see the replay of the event we did a couple weeks back. Um, I believe it's $25 for four or five hours of epic live stream content. Thank you so much to Hay and Stripe for being our headline partners for the year. It's always awesome to uh, be working with them in 2020 and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll see you again next week. Same time, same place.